spend most every day in the sidewalk cafe, drinking coffee, watching women walking by. The color of their hair, not the reason that I stare, but I always was a fool for the blind. Dog will hunt. Get that bitch like a face. Get that bitch. Dog will hunt. Happy October, everybody, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am Jim Lazkowski, and for this episode, I have another wonderful returning guest who you might remember from the episode. Uh, dedicated dedicated to the late great Wes Craven. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Daniel Baldwin. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> happy to be back. I'm happy that you're here. Um, I've been meaning to ask, any relation to Alec Baldwin? Not as far as I know, but okay. it's just- possible. Because he does have um, a lot of kinship, a lot of brothers. And uh, I don't know if maybe secretly there was a hidden connection there that, that uh, no, no, I was not made aware of yet. Well, if there is, I don't know about it either. So. Okay. Um, yeah, so this is going to be a very interesting discussion to kick off things here for... Um, what is my, it happens to be my favorite month of the year for obvious reasons, not just because, um, the weather cools down, I can get out my hoodies, uh, it's pumpkin season, which in my opinion has finally, well, I, I'm sure this is, this has been everybody's opinion for a while now, but it's out of control. Pumpkin season is insane right now. Like, I, I go into Trader Joe's, and there's, like, pumpkin-flavored macaroni and cheese, um, <laughs> pumpkin pizza. I don't know. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, I am Mr. – I'm pro-pumpkin. I am happily getting, you know, pumpkin-flavored coffee on a regular basis, but I I think it's – I think it's a sickness right now. Um and I'm, I'm I'm sorry to be the uh, the bearer of, of bad news when it comes to that, but it's just like, ooh man, we're we're inundated with pumpkin now. It used to just be this cool little treat, but um, now you, now you can't escape it. It is like the stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah. You're not down with the pumpkin spice M and M's, Jim? Mm, yeah, they're okay. No, I, I I can get behind some of the pumpkin flavored things, but yeah, but. So can I, but it's it's overkill. It is totally Absolutely overkill. overkill. Yeah, so it, it's it's a there, obviously there's always going to be a downside to everything, and uh, well, I'm 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 choosing to focus on the positive here. And October is a great month, uh, great weather, and of course Halloween season begins. Um, we're getting tons of crazy costumes. At the the thrift shop, the the thrift shop I work at, and people are getting really excited for Halloween. As um, most people know, Patrick is gearing up for the Halloween special 
the horror show that him and Gabe are putting together for the sequel episode that I think everybody is really stoked for. Um, I definitely. Yeah. Yeah. People are submitting their lists and, uh, you know, there's been some questionable entries in terms of, I think, I think it's something they'll, they'll bring up, uh, within the episode, like what qualifies as horror can, Apocalypse Now qualify as horror, you know, even though I think if you were to walk into a video store, first of all, I'd ask you, where'd you get the time machine? But if you were to walk (laughs) into a video store, Apocalypse Now would not be in the horror section, but it has obviously horrific elements to it. Um, so yeah, it, it's going to be a very interesting discussion. I'm sure I'm assuming it's going to be a very long episode, like the first uh horror show was. Uh, How long was it? <sighs> it was long, I know that. Yeah, <laughs> quite. it has to, it had to have been three and a half hours, I think, which is fine. That's probably right. Oh, yeah. Um, to and to tie it all together. Gabe has a lot of homework to do this month himself because he'll be on the um, second horror director episode of the month with uh, Stuart Gordon. So yeah, it's 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 an exciting month, and I'm really stoked to have Daniel on for for a couple of reasons. Obviously, we're gonna get into it. Um, Toby Hooper is a very interesting filmmaker to discuss (laughs) because let's face it he's (laughs) he's made a masterpiece clearly and there's just been a, a lot of weird detours throughout his career um and I don't know how to feel about a lot of his other films. Like I, I watch something like spontaneous combustion and scratch my head at the intent. Um, so <laughs> we're going to get into that in a little bit. And, you know, I, I know Daniel were, did you just kind of choose Toby Hooper just because I kind of gave you, um, an option just, or was it a director you were enthused to talk about regardless at some point? Or was it uh, just because I, like I'm like I posed the question to you, do you want to come on to talk about Toby Hooper? I don't quite remember which one of us approached the other one, but I I thought it'd be interesting to talk about, especially since, you know, he's kind of of the classic masters of horror from the seventies and eighties. He's kind of the redheaded stepchild. Yeah. He's He's got Texas Chainsaw as his absolute masterpiece, holding him higher than some of the lesser-known ones like Stuart Gordon. And I think you did Larry Cohen earlier this year, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, he's more known than those, but he's not quite on the as respected as you know Carpenter or Cronenberg or Craven. Yeah, I thought, I thought it interesting. He is like the little brother of of the greats and. You know, it's it, it's just difficult to sort of, I don't know, chastise a, a few of his titles just because I'm like, I'm sure he has good intentions and he seems like a sweet guy. 
And, you know, I've seen him in interviews and, you know, he even goes on record to say something like, I think people are too hard on the mangler, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my heart goes out to the guy because clearly he tries. He's just not always successful. And certainly we're going to go down the essentials and... You know, later on, he did a quite a bit of TV that I didn't get a chance. To, I didn't even get a chance to see Salem's Lot, which I have a very, very vague memory of when I saw it when I was a kid. Um, there's just certain moments and scenes, the creepy kid outside the window, and there's certainly things about it that um, I can recall vividly, but just not like I can't. I can't comment on the movie as a whole, to be honest. But, Daniel, you can talk about that one later when we get to it. Um, and I also I also want to ask you really quickly here, um, because it's something that's come up on a couple of podcasts that I listen to, particularly um, um, Film Junk. I want to ask you if you feel, personally, if we're going through a horror renaissance right now because we've had like the Babadook, It Follows, Good Night Mommy, Unfriended. Some I like obviously more than others. I'm just curious to know and I'll definitely be asking Gabe the same question. Do you think that more contemporary horror films are striking a chord with you in the same way that classics from the 70s and 80s did? Um, is this a quality period for horror right now, do you think? I think we might be ramping up for one. Um, yeah. It, of course, it comes in waves. Uh, you know, what The last wave we had was in the middle of the last decade. And, I mean, there's always good stuff in between, but it does feel like we're getting more great ones more often now. Plus, you have, like, an entire glut of, of course, they're not all good, but uh, horror TV shows. There's probably about a dozen on right now and probably about half a dozen more in the works. So we definitely seem to be on the verge of a big boom. There's already a boom on TV, and we might be getting one in theaters again. <laughs> I just don't know if it'll... The studio stuff is still waning, but it seems like a lot more independent films are getting picked up and starting to get wider releases again. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to lie. As I'm getting older, I'm not nearly as excited for horror films as I used to be, but there's no denying how enthused I am for Sam Raimi's pilot for Ash versus Evil Dead. You know, there there are certainly things um, you know, whether they're reboots or remakes or whatever that I'll scoff at. Um but like the titles I listed listed there, they're all original and you know, even if the executions don't resonate with me, I will admit there's just there's something in the air right now. Um, and I think it's a good thing. I think there needs to be, you know, because obviously in the 70s, there's a lot of social unrest taking place. And <laughs> clearly we're going to be talking about that with Toby Hooper's masterpiece. And, you know... <sighs> I even recently saw Sicario. I don't know if... Have you seen that yet? I haven't had a chance to get out to it yet. We only just got it here um, this weekend, actually. It was an interesting movie, even though it's not directly tied 
to at all the um you know the recent um school shooting in in Oregon it's just a really interesting film to digest after you're inundated with um extreme violence in the media and everybody's response to it and how our government deals with uh conflict <laughs> let's just put that put it that way <laughs> it's just it's just a really you know, you can you can certainly make it about the drug war since that's essentially what the film is about. But if you want to look at it in different contexts, you can. And I think that in some ways, especially the way um, it was affecting me as it went on, Sicario borders on horror in a way. Um, it's 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 obviously not again like apocalypse now it's not going to be lumped into that genre at all but there's a certain moment that I'm not going to give away to anybody but there's just you know when it's coming and like even the way the director shoots it in almost like a um a POV style it, it very much like zero dark 30 um it just it just made me feel the kind of tension that you would feel in a horror movie. And I think it's a movie that people should rush out and see and experience in a movie theater. Um, because it's just really, if people are talking about like the Martian is this big hoorah, optimistic, optimistic, um, take on science and everything. Sicario is just like, we're all fucked. That's all. That's <laughs> it. You know, our, our gut, we can't trust our government. Everything is fucked. And it's like the ultimate pessimistic movie right now. So I was, I think after Sicario, I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to definitely go see the Martian to lift my spirits or something. Cause yeah. Good double feature. <laughs> yeah. Most definitely. It's a really good time. Everybody to go to the movies right now. I mean, obviously with the fall and awards season coming up and everything, you got some quality things, hopefully. Um, I mean, at least, you know, because I'm near Chicago, you get a lot more options. But there's 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 a lot of stuff right now that could be playing in a multiplex like Sicario and The Martian and to some extent The Walk. Um, these are all really good movies that I think benefit from the theatrical experience. Uh, I mean, The Walk is a very flawed movie, but you have to see it in IMAX 3D. There's no question. Um, even if you hate Zemeckis, it's still, like, um, special effects at its best, by far. And the best use of 3D I've seen, maybe, ever. <laughs> to be honest. Should give you vertigo. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and I don't even have... I don't have a fear of heights at all, and I I thought I was going to pass out. Um, just at how realistic it, he made this seem, I was just like, God. And, um, I mean, the lead character is such a douche. And <laughs> jo Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think he's miscast, and his accent is really silly, but... You, there's no denying the escapist pleasures of seeing 
uh, the actual um, walk for 20 minutes towards the end. It, it's just like, okay, this was this was worth put, putting my $15 down for. Um, so yeah, that's great. And there's this um, gambling addiction kind of movie out called Mississippi Grind with... Ryan Reynolds and uh, Ben Mendelsohn. That's really good. There's just, it's a good time for for people who want to venture out to the to the cinema these days. And um, in Chicago, you have the um, Music Box. Well, I don't want to call it the Music Box Massacre. That's not what it's called anymore. Uh, the Music Box of Horrors, and there's a lot of good stuff. I'm really excited for, um, you know to talk about a lot of things on the show coming in the near future that, like I said, October is just a great month. Um, but I also really briefly here since Daniel, you were on for the West Craven episode. What was your initial reaction to the passing of you know, a, a very good horror director that we did a whole episode on. I mean, it was just, I had no idea that he was that ill at all. I don't think anyone really did outside of maybe his friends and family. I was kind of surprised when I heard about it, actually. I, I wasn't even online at the time. Uh, my wife told me about it. Hmm. I, I just kind of did a double take. Yeah. Because I didn't know he was sick. Um and he'd he's still been developing stuff like crazy. I'd always assumed that he would end up making at least one more film. I know, even if it was Scream Five, <laughs> you know, I would have been okay with that, to be honest. And yeah. you know, right after he passed, I, I, you know, I, I mentioned it on the show, and I, um, like the official episode, I mentioned it. The 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 guest I had on wasn't a big horror guy but i mean i wanted to bring it up again simply because you were on the west craven episode and you know i'm assuming like most actors writers directors the moment they pass the first thing you want to do is celebrate their their legacy and go back and rewatch films that were meaningful to you and had an impact did you uh, do that specifically? Did you watch a uh, favorite Wes Craven movie afterwards? Actually, I didn't. Uh, I haven't watched any since it happened. Not. Yeah. I, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. It, it's something I definitely want to do. What I did do, actually, was sit down and I'd been kind of wanting to do it anyway, but watch the um, Never Sleep Again um, yeah. I'm on Elm Street series doc. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, and he's on there a lot, talking a lot. So that that was kind of my way of revisiting it was just, you know, watching him. Yeah, and um, on Facebook, I also saw that um, there was postings of the Twilight Zone episode that he directed, um, and I I had to bring up the fact that, you know, when I first saw, I mean, I saw it when it first aired. You know, and I had no idea when I saw this as a kid who Wes Craven was at all. Um, but there's something about that episode he did um, with Melinda Dillon in which she has the power to 
basically stop time and tell everybody to shut up and everybody <laughs> freezes. There was something about that power that just obviously who wouldn't want that? Um, you know, like you're standing in line at the grocery store. Wouldn't it be great to just walk out <laughs> with all the, all the stuff you want? Um, you know, or just like there's certain situations where it would be so wonderful to just freeze time. It's such a great concept. And the way it ends, obviously it being the twilight zone, it has a depressing ending, but, um, as a kid, I remember watching it with my parents and being so, like I and I had to go to bed right after this episode ended, and I had to go to bed with these images of, uh, basically the apocalypse uh, or of nuclear you know war occurring, and it was something I don't know if I'd ever been exposed to at that point. I mean maybe I'd seen a movie or something else before that, but just the idea of like well I have to stop time forever or the world's gonna end. And you have to roam the earth alone now was just like, oh, my God, that really haunted me. And I couldn't fall asleep based on just the theme and the idea of that. And the fact that Wes Craven was responsible for directing that really great episode. I mean, I I can't speak highly of all of the Twilight Zone episodes of the 80s, but um, it's just really cool to find out like, oh, yeah, well, uh, you know, one of my favorite directors uh, directed a, an episode of Twilight Zone that really had an effect on me at a young age. Um, and then obviously he scared the shit out of me again with Nightmare on Elm Street. So <laughs> I, I, I wish I could have had the pleasure of shaking his hand and uh, thanking him for all of his hard work. I was always hoping, you know, maybe at a convention or at some point I could just you know, almost talk psychology with him, at, you know, or uh, he's just a guy. He just, he seems really approachable. Doesn't he? He does. Um, I know a lot of people always peg him as the, the kind old horror professor. Yeah, exactly. He's a lot like a college professor, just very soft spoken and upbeat. Yeah. He Someone doesn't you can and talk with for hours. He doesn't seem like the creepy guy. Uh, in body bags. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. The pasty-faced man. Right. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's it's always sad when someone that meant something to you as as a kid uh, leaves, and you know, there's pl- there's plenty of you know actors and writers and directors and musicians that when they pass, it just feels like. Uh, you know, uh, something from the past is conjured up, and you're 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 m- gonna miss that part of you. And I don't know. There, there, there's definitely something about Wes Craven as a person and the films that he created and his uh, his legacy that just you know it, it means a lot to me personally. Even if obviously he made you know some stinkers, and we brought that up on our episode too. Um, there's a reason why people are very excited to see something like Serpent and the Rainbow at the Music Box uh, later this month, you know? So, right. clearly, yeah. there's a lot more to talk about with, you know, the films he's done over, over the years. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, that That's the other thing I did in addition to revisiting that documentary is that I pretty much just poured over a lot of perspectives and editorials about Wes Craven and his work. Um, I just, I kind of live vicariously for the people that actually did plow through his, um, his body of work. The, the other thing, of course, about, you know, Craven passing away is that it reminds you how old all the others in his uh, filmmaking bracket are. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, we might have a few more of these in the coming years. Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah, the, the first step on a depressing trail. Yeah, to lose more masters of horror within our lifetime is not going to be easy. But, like I said, the fact that, you know, a lot of these guys have contributed so much works of art, so many works of art, and, you know, you know, even if Toby Hooper were to... I bet I shouldn't even say if he were to pass away tomorrow, because then if he does, I'm really going to hate myself. Um, but even if he were to pass away tomorrow... He made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the more I watch it, (laughs) the more it it just becomes apparent that it is my favorite horror movie. And, you know, it kind of goes back and forth. Like, I I bet if I just put on John Carpenter's The Thing right now, maybe that would change. Like, it would just veer back and forth. Because both films do something to me that very rarely can happen where I'm in awe of the craft and I'm scared beyond belief and you know the the sounds the score like everything just comes together beautifully and it's more of like being in awe and being terrified at the same time um so yeah I mean we can just transition I guess because you know, this episode is all about Hooper. Now, I've always wondered, though, is it... I mean, I guess everybody knows him as Toby Hooper. Why isn't... Why, why is his name spelled that way, though? Like, I, <laughs> I always wondered that just because, like, isn't it... Couldn't it be pronounced Tobe? Why, why isn't it spelled like a traditional Toby, like T-O-B-Y? I have no idea, and I've actually yeah. heard people call Tobe Hooper before. Hmm. Okay. Uh, in fact, well, of course, it was a long time ago before we had, you know, featurettes and documentaries to watch out the wazoo. I had always kind of wondered how I was supposed to pronounce it just from reading stuff. But, uh, you know, it, it's Toby, but I've, I've heard a lot of people pronounce it Tobe, and I can't really blame them for doing that. Yeah, I have. I, I didn't watch, like, on YouTube if, you know, he, he appeared at. Uh like a Q&A or something, and somebody would um, pronounce his name a different way or something, or if he would correct them. And I don't think that would ever happen, but I'm just curious, like, oh, I want to get confirmation on that. Maybe I'll just have to contact his publicist and see if I can interview him at some point. <laughs> and be like, is it Tobe? I just wanted one question. Is it Tobe or Toby? <laughs> uh, it's from Mars at the show with my dad. Sing, pull 
Poltergeist on TV scared me bad. I saw the Mangler too. It was black. Life Force was full of boobs. What? Texas Chainsaw Massacre came, and baby, it fucked me up more than anything. It's crazy. The director also made the Fun House and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Two. He also did eating alive. Ooh. Eggshells on dangerous tonight. He's Toby, Toby Hooper. He's Toby Hooper. He's Toby, Toby He is kind of like the little brother of the, you know, core Masters of Horror group. Um, he kind of came out swinging with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and has done some, at least in my opinion, some very good film since, but never anything quite on that level again. And then, um, of course, he he never had a, a 90s renaissance. He just kind of for whatever reason, his career lost steam in the middle of the eighties and he never really regained popularity. Um, you know, Carpenter kind of maintained his, despite some bumps on the road, Craven had his nineties resurgence with scream. Um, Cronenberg transferred into more dramatic fare. And, uh, but you know, Toby never, never quite managed any of any, any kind of transition. And then there's also the other fact that a lot of those directors that I just mentioned also tended to uh, write their own work, whereas Hooper a lot of times was just hired. And while he made, at least for a while, each project his own, there's there's less of an authorship um, and there's less of a, uh, I don't know what to say, like an auteur through line through his yeah. work. Um, there are a lot of themes a lot of subjects that he keeps touching on again, over and over again, at least up through the end of his eighties run. But, uh, there's, there's less of a gosh, words are uh, escaping me here. You can't always, unless you know it ahead of time, you can't always pop in a Toby Hooper film, just point at it and go, Hey, that's a Toby Hooper movie. Yeah. There's, um, there's less consistency. I think. Yeah. He, he doesn't really have his own set visual style. Yeah. Yes, whereas, you know, with Cronenberg or Carpenter, Craven, and even Stuart Gordon to a, to a uh, certain extent, uh, you can kind of peg their films right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, a colleague of mine likes to call him Toby Fluker. Uh, <laughs> in that he's made one brilliant flawless masterpiece and uh you know it's it's one of those cases too where uh <laughs> you know what can you say about texas chainsaw massacre that hasn't already been said and you know even 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 if you just type in toby hooper uh, analysis or essay or whatever under google the majority of things that have been written about him is in reference to Texas Chainsaw Massacre um, or Poltergeist to some extent, but then there's, it's unfortunate and I'm going to try and steer clear of the whole Spielberg versus Hooper argument. Cause I think that's been played out to death. I think at this yeah. point it's like, 
you know, his name is, is his name is on the film. It's in the credits. And, you know, we can make the argument all we could go. We could do a running commentary right now and point out scene for scene like, oh, that looks like Spielberg. No, that looks like Hooper or whatever. Uh, the fact that um, Toby Hooper's name is on it, I'm sticking with that he directed it. And Spielberg contributed a whole hell of a lot, I'm sure. But I don't think he was literally doing every scene or anything. He probably just came in to help. Um, so yeah, I, I concur. It's a, it's a difficult director to, um, pin down, like you said, a specific, um, style that you can say, this is what Toby Hooper does and this is what makes him great. And, you know, and being this podcast called Director's Club and sort of, expanding on the idea of auteur theory and whether if it's legit. Um, this is a case where, yeah, I don't think it, it applies, and that's fine. You know, to not have a recognizable sort of stamp or staple or just like a, you know, that's that, there's Toby Hooper right there. I mean, there's certainly things, especially if you watch you know, something like Life Force and Invaders from Mars back-to-back, there are certain visual palettes or even just the, the the lightning sound effects, or you can even make a correlation between the tunnels and Invaders from Mars and the, the kind of playful tunnels at the end of, uh, you know, Chainsaw 2. There are certain things and certain imagery that look familiar that he's yep. done. There- I did notice that but I, I, mostly what I watched, I watched in order just to kind of see if I could pick up on anything. And there, there are definitely visual cues and elements that carry over, not through all the films that I, that I watched, but you know, there'll be like, um, let's say, uh, there's a little bit of clown imagery in the over the uh, antlers and the dead animals and the skeletons, um, you've got that in, you know, Texas Chainsaw, Eaten Alive, and Salem's Lot. And um, very briefly, Invaders from Mars. Very briefly. True. Yeah, um, when he's in the van. You brought up the, the tunnels, which are usually like a reddish or orange color. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got that in Poltergeist, um, Life Force a little bit. Uh, and then, of course, Invaders from Mars and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So there's, I don't, I don't know if they're like small visual obsessions that he would keep with him for a while, and then just kind of, you know, grow out of it as he went on. But there's, there's definite connections there, just in terms of visuals. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, in terms of like maybe a psychology make a, a psychological makeup. You know, it's it's not easy to pinpoint either in terms of like you know like what Hitchcock would bring. Um, you know, like oh, clearly he has these kinds of issues, and he has a penchant for blondes, or you know, um, whereas you know Toby Hooper, it, it's not easy to like find consistent themes unless you're just like you know kind of, and that's the thing that kind of drives me crazy that I've noticed more and more. And this, this is where people might want to tune out, especially if you're like 
die-hard horror fans, um, I might lose some cred. But <laughs> there's um, this sh- kind of shrill, dark, comedic, hillbilly horror. I cannot stand it. <laughs> I just I find it utterly obnoxious and grating. Um, and watching something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, um, it, it, it's it, it's like nails on a chalkboard from for me. Um, and it but it also kind of made it helped me to make sense of something like Rob Zombie's films, where I kind of go, well, clearly he's influenced by the seventies. That's that without a doubt. You know, you can you can pinpoint certain uh, inspirations from that from that decade for his work. But then again, I watched something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, and you know, clearly with 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 a character actor like Bill Mosley, and but just the the tone of Texas Chainsaw two, it's not my thing. It's just, I mean, people obviously find it funny, and people find it, you know. Um, just plain old entertaining to watch uh, Leatherface go through puberty in his own way with <laughs> with the with the chainsaw essentially an extension of his dick and I don't find that very entertaining. I find it really grating and loud and shrill and uh, I don't know the chainsaw fight at the end. I'm not entertained by that either. I wish I was. I'm watching it going, you know, so many people I love and respect and so many horror fans kind of revere this movie for being the playful comedic version of the first film. Because even Hooper himself was like, I wish people would see the humor more in the first Texas Chainsaw. And clearly he just wanted to amp that shit up. <laughs> he cranked it up to 11 for sure. Yeah. And I've tried, I've tried a couple of times and I think that there's just something about the original that makes it one of its own, you know, wholly unique and almost perfect in every single way that it, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is like its antithesis and almost like giving the first one a middle finger. Um, even though it's, a, it's the same director, but it just feels like, you know, years later, he's Toby Hooper's a completely different person at that point, and he's filtered through canon. And, you know, I'm I'm I know there was studio conflict. Um, did you ever see the? Um, I didn't get to watch it all, but did you did you watch the shocking truth, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre documentary? Uh, I've seen it before, but it's been a long time. Yeah. I did not watch it before we before we did this. Yeah, the uh, the lead actress in, in in Chainsaw Two was talking about like Toby Hooper has had constant struggles with studios, and you can kind of see that with the, the canon trilogy. Like, I know people are going to defend to the hilt something like Life Force as being like this really spectacular mess. Um, and it's, it's just so apeshit, crazy, weird 
that you, you gotta love it. Some people will, you know, that's that's their take. Like, it's just so fucking weird. And it has, you know, naked space vampires and, you know, sp- <laughs> vampire zombies and just a, a lot of things that, you know, would, would fit, would be right at home with a classic B-horror picture. Um, it just doesn't sit well with me. It just doesn't, it, and it even doesn't sit well with me, the fact that, the, that um, you know, Matilda May, I think is her name, the lead in uh, Life Force. She doesn't even list it on her resume because she's so embarrassed by it. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, there's two instances of, like, me going, is Toby Hooper kind of a creep? Kind of a perv? With um, uh, the opening of Funhouse. Like, I just think, like, the lead actress in that looks way too young to be showing her boobs and stuff. I mean, I don't know what her real age was at the time, but I was just like, I found that creepy. And I think Patrick's brought that up too at some point. I think, um, and yeah. then I'm, obviously I'm, Life Force. Yeah, I'm not sure what age she's supposed to be at the start of Unhouse, but it it plays like she's in high school. Right. So that's creepy. And then the fact that it's her brother messing around with her in the shower. Yeah. And the scare just adds a whole other level of weird to it. Uh, with the, with the canon films. I, th- I think the pressure there was l- it wasn't really creative meddling. It was just money. Always money problems. Always trying to. Sure. And of course, those films plus uh, Masters of the Universe and Superman 4 pretty much bankrupted that company because they were just throwing money all over the place. They sure uh, will. I'm actually, when we're done, I'm going to be finally watching the uh, Canon documentary. It's been. Electric Boom. Yeah, I've been dying. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I've been dying to see it. Uh, I actually read some interview, recent interviews with Hooper, and and he clarified and said that he was frustrated a lot when working with Canon due to the budget problems, hmm. um, not being able to shoot everything that he had planned because they would run out of money at the last minute. But he actually apparently enjoy, very much enjoyed working with them because of the creative freedom that they afforded him. Well, that's good. Okay. But, um, I know uh, Texas Chainsaw 2 was the most stressful for him simply because um, I believe it was shot in June of 86 and came out in August of 86. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) The fact that it's even coherent is a miracle. Didn't it even come out on the same day as Invaders from Mars? I'm not sure what how far their uh, release was apart, but they both came out that summer, I believe. Yeah, that's had... crazy. And uh, the fun thing about Invaders from Mars is, I guess he was in prep on Life Force. He had signed a three-picture deal with them, and he was talking to one of those guys, Golan or Globus, talked about how, uh, how much he loved the original Invaders from Mars. So they went out and found the rights to remake it, just based off of that conversation without him even asking about it. <laughs> a very Golan and Globus thing to do. Yeah. Extremely motivated, ambitious gentleman. Um, yeah, that's, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll touch upon those too. I, right. I do want to get to just, you know, I mean, like I said, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 
is a masterpiece. And in the bonus episode I just did with Patrick, I sort of elaborated mainly because he brought up in his uh, letterbox review. There is a section in this film, which I, th- I will concur with it being quite possibly the best directed sequence in horror movie history, where it starts off with, um, you know, after they, they discover that the uh, water hole they wanted to go swimming in is all dried up. Um, that's, you know, when he discovers that there's a house over there and he thinks, oh, they probably have gasoline we can use. And from that moment up until, you know, when, um, you know, she's put on the, on the meat hook and all that, that, that entire, you know, whatever it's like 10 minutes or so, maybe even less, but it's just graceful in the way it's edited. And obviously, you know, everybody can talk about, and, you know, that one sort of famous shot of making the house look larger than life as she's walking towards it, that was completely improvised. That wasn't planned. And, you know, it it clearly has a documentary feel to it, Uh, you know, a cinema verite approach to telling a story. Um, And, you know, it's just, there's something about that era of horror filmmaking, whether it is something that's like batshit crazy, go for broke, like, like Evil Dead. And even though I'm not as big of a fan as Last House on the Left, um, just the audacity of these filmmakers channeling all this social unrest of the 70s in like this really cathartic manner and managing to, to tell stories that have never been told in this way deserves like all the, you know, all the praise in the world. And I think at this point, most people have, most people have cited Texas Chainsaw Massacre as one of the greatest works of art. And it belongs in a museum, if it isn't already in a museum. I think it is. <laughs> Pretty sure it is. It might even be on the National Film Registry. I'm not positive about that, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hooper definitely had something to prove, and also you know, the, the social angle, a lot of rage. But um, I guess when I was reading up on stuff, after he made Eggshells, that got him a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. But it didn't really take him anywhere because it was an experimental drama about hippies. That's not really the kind of thing to make a Hollywood sit up and take notice. So that's why he set out to make a horror film, and he made one hell of one. Uh, of course, it fits right in line with uh, Not a Living Dead, Last House on the Left, just right in the middle of all of the Vietnam and social unrest of the early 70s. Uh, did you get a chance to watch Eggshells? No, I didn't. I, I tried looking for it. I know it's isn't it on the uh, Texas Chainsaw Two Blu-ray or something? Yeah, in uh, uh, Arrow one from England. Ah, okay. It's uh, it and his uh, 1965 short film The Heisters are both uh, special features. On yeah, the I would. Arrow, I would definitely be willing to check it out even post this episode just out of curiosity for sure. Um, yeah, you know, we could do at some point I plan on doing this too. It'll probably be later on, but like just 
talk about the 70s, man, <laughs> in horror. They were so much was going on. People were so disillusioned. Um, and like I mentioned earlier um, with the bonus episode with Patrick, um, Toby Hooper was also struggling with vegetarianism, or I mean, like with eating meat, and sort of did his own research on the way, uh, you know, meat was processed. And that was channeled into the into the film, clearly. So he questioned the ethics of meat consumption. Um, and there was like a, a, a scarcity with uh, gasoline. Like it was, it was very scarce, too. And that's why, you know, at the time, especially in that part of Texas, I guess, you really had to hunt for it. Um, so like all these things sort of coalesced. For me, it really is... I mean, as I'm watching it and I'm doing my own, clearly, sort of projection, but the inevitability of death just being relentless, it pays no mind to who you are, and it will chase after you to no end. It doesn't matter what circumstances you're under, or if you're disabled, or if you're, you know, whatever your politics are, it's just going to come at you. And... This movie just captures that dread and tension and the visceral uh, immediacy of death stalking you to no end. Um, Once Leatherface appears, it is... All bets are off. It is one of the greatest works of art. I just can't get... Like, every time I watch this, I'm like... It makes me feel so much anxiety, but I love reliving it at the same time. And it's probably because of what just Hooper did as a director. Like, just choices and, like I said, there are moments where the the camera, it's, it's not like, you know, it's not all handheld, crazy, shaky cam stuff. You know, the, the, he does things like the zooming of the eyeballs or, like I said, that, that shot of her approaching the house. It's really graceful. You know, it's it's clear dollies and things that are very pure and immediate and also just well done and not just um, showing off, but complimenting the movie experience. So, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I don't know if uh, you heard, it's damn great. (laughs) Um, Uh, It gets my highest rating, so (laughs) it doesn't get much better than that. Um, and it's certainly, in my opinion, it, it does, it's interesting. Did, did you read Ebert's review by chance? Because, like, it doesn't read at all like a two-star review. Uh, see, I was getting ready to ask you if he, if he uh, loved it or hated it. Usually with the, those 70s films and even the, the 80s ones, I just automatically assume that Siskel hated the movie. Well, there's a 50-50 chance that he thought it was amazing or absolute trash. (laughs) That's the thing. It's a two-star review, but he's acknowledging that it's a great film. Like, he he basically says it's it's great, it's just not for him then. Yeah, I I guess that's how it reads in the end. Um, But to me, it's like, as I'm reading it, it's like, this does not read at all like a two-star review. (laughs) 
<laughs> it really doesn't. It just it's more of like acknowledging like this is so effective. This is such a a one of a kind movie experience that I've never experienced and never will again. And and at the end of the day, it is almost like I don't know. I don't know if you want to see this. Go ahead, but not for me. And this is I'll just never understand like just the overwhelming glowing praise for something like Last House on the Left and whereas this eh, I'll give it two stars. <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting because like I even called out um Devin Faraci on the canon because like he made this blanket statement saying Eber just hated horror movies. And I was like, dude, you know, he, he Exorcist, Dawn of the Dead. Um, I'm sure there's more that I'm just not thinking off the top of my head. But, well, Last House on the Left. <laughs> Clearly, Ebert did not, you know, dismiss all horror movies. No, it, it was about 50-50. But, I mean, it's just like playing Russian roulette when you go back and read some of those ones that you think he'll love, he ended up not. And sometimes the ones you just look at the title and go, there's no way Roger Ebert loved that movie. And then lo and behold, it has a good review. Yeah. It took him a long time to come around to somebody like David Lynch. That's for sure. Mm. Yep. But, you know, (laughs) nevertheless, I, you know, I'm probably going to, I I think every few years I do try to, and especially in light of Wes Craven passing, I try to give Last House on the Left another chance. I don't know if I'll ever get past the tonal issues with the the bumbling cops and the sheriff <laughs> and all that stuff. I don't know if I'll ever like just be able to look past that as a flaw. Um, but I want to give it another shot. I and do I, too. I, I'll, I'll actually be doing that later this month. Yeah. Um, Whereas, uh, you know, again, with Texas Chainsaw, I, I just bet Hooper felt the weight of expectation and people probably coming up to him saying, what else you got? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm certain after something like that, because it was an immediate, it was pretty much an immediate success. People right out of the gate were, were, you know, coming out of the theater, calling it a masterpiece and, Critic, critics were were loving it, and audiences were flocking to it. You know, it was the talk of the town. And I'm sure after that he felt like, what am I going to do? How am I going to top that? Well, he gave us um, Eaten Alive. A <laughs> killer crocodile, or alligator. I forgot which, which it is. I get him confused. <laughs> well, that's that's because everyone else in the movie, other than Jed, calls it an alligator, and they make fun of him for insisting that it's a crocodile. So, <laughs> it's hard to tell what it is, actually. Yeah, I know. He pops up once in a while, but it is hard to tell. Um, you know, it's an interesting movie. I it's definitely like Texas Chainsaw Light, um, and I think that's why he was hired to do it in the first place. He even, he has even admitted as much that they they specifically sought him out to direct it. Yeah, it's it's another raw kind of ugly film that just has elements that I can get behind. Um particularly just 
Robert England. You know, you, 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 there's no denying that he's perfect in as a character like that. Um, and I happen to have this thing, and I, I never really realized it probably until watching this movie that it's like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess I just love movies that take place in really creepy, shitty, seedy motels. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, I, you know, when I was on the road and doing some traveling, I mean, I, I, star- I stayed in my fair share of really cheap rundown places. And, you know, if, if you walk out to your car for a little bit and, you see the kind of people that are checking in. Um, you, you will be scared, and you will double lock your door. There, there's just something about certain roadside motels, and you know, psycho withstanding. Of course, I mean, just they're just creepy. You can drive past them and just go, "Well, that's a creepy place." And throughout this, <laughs> throughout most of this movie, I'm going to the to anybody who. <laughs> driving up to this place. Why do you want to stay there? Look at that place. It looks terrible. <laughs> it it makes sense that Buck would want to go there, yeah. but not anyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, I think it's another reason why I give the movie Vacancy such a pass, because it's mostly a one-location, you know, um, sort of a psychological horror film of sorts, where it's like, you know, a couple being chased down, in a seedy motel and a movie with a horrible ending that I could not stand based on the ending identity also takes place in like a creepy motel. But these are, these are movies that I really like, just like the atmosphere. I like the way the, the stories are told, the execution, the, the cinematography. Um, and in this, it is, it's just very raw and icky. Um, and it does have moments of, you know, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre style of stalking to where I'm like, oh yeah, I can see why Hooper would be attracted to this material and why this, you know, seemed to, why it still has a cult following. Um, I know it was entirely shot on the stage and it kind of looks like it. Um, that was intentional. (laughs) Yeah. He, I, I guess, Hooper just really loves the artifice of stage settings. Sure, um, and, and the look of eating alive is about it. I mean, it it straight up looks like a stage, but in a good way. It has kind of like a throwback uh, feel to it, and that man, like a version of a a Wizard of Oz set. Yeah. Well, I mean, one location films can be claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why, you know, um, I was on board for this. I, I really wanted to see if the child was going to survive. I needed to see if Freddy Krueger was going to get laid. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's more of a silly exercise that occasionally taps into the creepy atmosphere that we get in, in Massacre. But it's, you know, it's it's essentially just a slasher movie with a evil reptile creature, because it's very repetitive after a while. Yeah. Um, 
that poor, poor little girl. I don't know if she was worse off being up under the motel or having William Finley and Marilyn Burns for her parents. <laughs> William Finley, man, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I don't. He's even crazy. He's he was even crazier than Judd. I, have no I know. Idea he just starts barking at her. Like, what's wrong with you? The dog just got eaten, and he starts barking. God. Yeah, they they. She's absolutely traumatized, and they treat her dog being eaten like she stubbed her toe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when that dog got eaten, I was like, oh god, fuck. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, it does have its moments, and I didn't. I wasn't turned off by it the way I am with other Hooper's films later on. Um, but I, you know, I know um, former guest Bill Ackerman puts this up in the upper tier of Hooper's work. I wouldn't. I would just say it's a, it's a solid, okay, B-level horror film that's more icky than scary. That's about where I land on it. And I didn't, I didn't grow up with this one. Um, this was actually the first time I had seen it. Um, it's 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 good. Um, it's not something I would revisit a lot, you know, outside of maybe plowing through Hooper's work again. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a solid movie. It it just isn't something that resonated with me. Right. Um. So we move on to the Fun House. Now, which, now, don't skip the plot. <laughs> which I actually don't know how you feel about. I, you can start out on this one. What, what, what's your take on the fun house? On the fun house? I've seen a lot of, of course, it, it kind of falls into the slasher category, even though I wouldn't really um, peg it as a slasher movie. Pers- not, at least not in the traditional sense of, you know, the time of its release. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not, again, it's not one I grew up with, although I have seen it a few times. Uh, I actually liked it a lot better this time. Uh, previously I'd not, I'd just kind of run lukewarm on it. And I think a lot of, uh, the reason I liked it this time had to do with, you know, just watching, going through his work one after another. Um, of course the, the hippie aspect, uh, Hooper has an obsession with hippies at, the, <laughs> at least. Yeah. In his uh, career, of course, you know, eggshells has hippies. The uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is kind of hippie-ish. Um, I don't know what in the world is going on with William Finley and Marilyn Burns in Eating Alive, but uh, you know, yeah, that 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 those that uh, couple yeah. in Eating Alive. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I think that's something that's going to stay with me. Um, is the is just that. Yeah, William Finley and Marilyn Burns' portrayal of parents in Eaten Alive, which I think probably, again, influenced uh, Rob Zombie's work. There's a lot of Hooper in Rob Zombie's film work. Yeah. Um, But but yeah. Even even moving on with the hippie thing, uh, Salem's Lot, David Soul's character, Ben Mears, isn't really a hippie, but he's pegged in a negative way by the sheriff when he's doing a background check as a lefty liberal. And uh, and then, of course, you get to Funhouse, which doesn't carry over the hippie theme, but it does carry over the other reoccurring theme that I 
stories that I watched was crazy people having a really bad day. <laughs> That's a good way to sum it up. If you want to sum up Hooper's films, sure. Yeah. The the big recurring themes that I see at least up through the fun house are um, hippies getting slaughtered and crazy people having really awful days. You know, Leatherface is just having the worst day of his life <laughs> in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He doesn't know where these people are com- coming from. They won't stop coming up to his house. All he wants to do <laughs> is sit in the back and process meat. So his older brother won't yell at him when he gets home. Um, Judd clearly has issues of his own and keeps having to kill all of these people that are staying in his hotel. And then, of course, you get to the fun house and you have Kevin Conway and our uh, mutant maniac dealing with their own issues of thievery and murder. Yeah. Fun, fun House definitely plays like a morality tale, although I'm not sure it, it doesn't really have a clear ending. And that's not necess- like in that regard. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but they, everyone involved is definitely punished for pretty much everything, whether it's, you know, strangling a woman to death or stealing money from somebody, uh, teenage lust. <laughs> or just the, uh, the protagonist's uh, lack of responsibility in regards to her her little brother, and but uh, it, you know in, instead of everyone learning a lesson or coming out, it changed. Everyone's just positively damaged by the end of it. Like both of those kids are going to be in therapy for the rest of their lives. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... So I I wouldn't label Funhouse some. Unlock or like lost gem, but I do rate it higher than Eaten Alive. I did I did really enjoy it. I don't know if that will hold for the future because, like I said, it, it I was kind of lukewarm on it in the past. Right. Um, I, I enjoyed it a lot more this time, and uh, I don't know. It it just worked for me this time. I and I'd, I'd never noticed it before since I especially since I hadn't watched the documentary on it. But that uh, Kevin Conway plays all three uh, carnival barkers in the movie. So I kind of liked that. <laughs> I didn't notice that either. Hmm. Yeah. All three of them. But uh, it, it's, it's got a sense of dread and doom that I really like to it, but it, it's, it just has some odd qualities and it feels, it kind of feels like he wanted to skew more towards the full on crazy of his earlier films, but with just pushing them into the slasher mold a bit. It didn't fully work, but uh, I like it. Well, I'm glad. Uh, I'm more lukewarm on it, and maybe maybe after a rewatch or two, I'll feel differently. But it felt like a slow burn. Definitely. Uh, uh, and the and the build up to a payoff that I don't know the mutant thing. Hmm. I kind of I mean I guess part of me saw that coming just because it's a. Uh, the movie's called Funhouse, and there's going to be a carnival. Um, yeah, it kind of devolved after a while, where it just really does become a mutant chasing around these teenagers and stuff. It has its moments of tension, but it's, it's mostly just stalking and screaming, and 
Um, I guess I just wanted something a little bit more clever and creative with, with the setting, especially. I mean, again, we got claustrophobia going on when they're trapped in, in, in the environment that they're trapped in. I, um, I do like the lead actress a lot, even though, like I said, she looks too young to be topless. Um, but it's not, it's not a bad movie at all. I think the best thing I can say about it, especially in light of Hooper's earlier films, it's really well shot and colorful. I mean, that's inherent, I guess, when you're talking about a carnival, you would hope that there's some color to it and some, some life. But um, I just thought, hmm, this is a really good-looking horror film. And when I looked up who shot it, I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. It's Andrew Laszlo, who did First Blood, The Warriors, Streets of Fire. Um, he did Poltergeist, too. Crazy. Um, but yeah, he's he's a hell of a cinematographer. He He knows what he's doing. He knows how to light things. He knows how to make things look interesting. And that's the that's the one thing I I picked up on. I was like, oh, cool. Well, I mean, even if the it's a standard sort of mutant slasher, um, you know, coming after lusty teenagers kind of a thing. After all is said and done, um, yeah. I mean, if I want to reframe it in a, in a in a in a weird way that I'm probably way off base with, and it's kind of kind of dumb to consider this way, but I don't know if Hooper was trying to channel, like, maybe his, you know, perversions and and, and lust into this mutant creature. Like, this mutant creature represents his id, in a way. And, um, and this is, man, this is me turning into Freud, for God's sake. This is ridiculous. Um... But yeah, like I was just thinking, hmm, maybe this mutant is a part of Hooper, you know, and like this, you know, he's going after this woman because he's lustful and, you know, now he's uh, going after these lusty teenagers and in a way that's like uh, another form of catharsis, a form of um, trying to channel your id into a... uh, into a monster character, which I, I imagine is the basis for most horror <laughs> really is just like, let me channel all my anxieties, whether they're sexual in nature or violent in nature or not into a monster character that I can write about as opposed to an act on screen. And, you know, someone like Quentin Tarantino once said, if I wasn't a filmmaker, I'd probably be a serial killer. <laughs> so, I don't think you're entirely off base, especially in light of you know the way Leatherface is portrayed in Texas Chainsaw Massacre too, because there's yeah. a lot of it there as well. So that I, I think you you might be onto something there. Well, I like I like the Leatherface in in the original. Like I really like how you point out the fact that yeah he's like like you know he he just wants to cut some meat and you know hear all these people invading his house and he's really scared and confused by it, almost like almost like Lenny in an invite of mice and men or something. He's just, he's just really kind of like a, he's like a child. He's like a big child. And, you know, you can certainly find humor in, you know, the, the, <laughs> the way, um, you know, the father character says, look what, look what your brother did to the damn door. You know, and, respect for his home. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. I mean, she'll laugh at that part always. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, there's something about amplifying that to eleven that really irks me. Like you can make it subtle, but just. I mean, maybe if you're in the right frame of mind, and again, because comedy is so subjective and people who find Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 very funny, there's nothing to argue about there. If you find it funny and entertaining, uh, more power to you. I just don't. But um, Funhouse is fine. I don't really like it all that much because I was like, I was kind of getting restless with it. It seems like it's maybe takes like 40 minutes to get to the creature. Um, but I like the cast. I, I like the cinematography. Um, but it, it really does not stand out as, uh, again, I, I think it's just because fuck Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist just raised the bar so high that it's just impossible for, for him to really knock out of the park. And that's not, that's unfair. That's like asking, you know, it's like asking every Woody Allen movie to be Annie Hall or something. Okay. You know, you can't ask every director to, you know, make a masterpiece every every time out of the gate. So it's easy to appreciate Funhouse for its strengths and certainly Eaten Alive. Um, same goes for that. Whereas something like Poltergeist, because it's, you know, a seminal favorite, it's something I watched as a kid, it's something that scared the shit out of me. Um, and it's just, it's just a damn good horror movie in every way. And the, and the, and the fact that it's one of the best families too, in a horror movie, the, the fact that, you know, you spend some time, even if it is kind of, again, a slow buildup, you spend some time with this family, you really start, you really care. They seem like, you know, three dimensional, real characters real people they're not just standard you know um caricatures that you can't wait to die or something you know <laughs> these you know, like Craig T. Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams are really good parents um wonderful in it yeah and of course Heather O'Rourke I mean god she <laughs> one of the best child performances ever certainly one of the best in a horror film and I don't know if you've seen the remake but it's just not yet no. it's just god it's so depressing to watch the remake because it it really does everything wrong it, 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 it you don't care about the parents the parents are you know um non-existent practically like they just don't you don't care about their plight or the fact that the father's unemployed or whatever and you know you it just the child performance from heather o'rourke raised the bar and you it, again it's just impossible to top what she does in this film um all the more tragic you know that she's left us so 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 young but um it's real. It, it is. It's, it's a tough movie to talk about just because of the whole Spielberg versus Hooper thing. But I also think there's no denying the fact, you know, stuff like the skeletons or the stuff like the the meat rotting or the guy looking in the mirror. 
that's Hooper. Clearly. There, yeah, there's some he, disturbing things in this movie. His dark sense of humor is all over the film. Absolutely. Uh, and I've, I think it's a hard discussion, not only because of you know the controversy, but also the fact that um, to a certain degree, I think their Spielberg and Hooper sensibilities fit really well together. At yeah. least on this. So it's hard to tell, you know, especially since Spielberg produced it, uh, co-wrote it, and you know, just shepherded the whole thing before Hooper even came along. It's hard to tell where Steven stops and Toby really begins on that film. And uh, in the end. Um, I think Spielberg helped out a lot on it. It is clearly a Steven Spielberg movie in that regard. But um I, I don't I don't think there's any sort of weird conspiracy behind it. I don't think no. Steven Spielberg directed the film. I think he was just incredibly hands on and you know, Hooper knew that from the get go and was fine with it and uh and I don't see much need for people to you know, keep debating it over and over again. Because in the end, it is both a Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg film. Right. I I completely agree. I don't think I don't think Spielberg is the type. To, I mean, who knows? I don't know him personally, but um, I don't think he's the type to like just step in and take over just because like maybe Hooper was being passive at the time or not uh, assertive enough with his vision. You know, maybe Spielberg's like literally went, literally went up to Hooper and said, "Hey, you want me to help out?" As opposed to like being an, an intrusive force or something, because like you know, just things are portrayed out there as Spielberg took over, and this is not a Toby Hooper movie at all. And I'm kind of like, that's that's not the way it comes across to me while watching this movie. I will openly admit that yes. The way the family dynamics are presented is totally Spielberg. The, you know, the scene, you know, where, um, uh, you know, Tangina is talking to uh, the mother as they're, you know, like the the brother and her sitting on the couch together. There's and you know, there's elements of the score. There's certain things where I'm like, yeah, that's that that would totally belong in a Spielberg movie without question. Um, but in the end, it's also a terrifying movie that has Hooper's sensibilities scattered throughout to where if it's a collaborative effort, I think it's a, it's a, a successful one through and through. It is one of my favorite horror films and it's crazy how this one is almost, you know, almost perfect. But what really knocks it down just a little bit for me is just one weird edit that you cannot get past. And everybody, I think, knows what that edit is when you see it. Because it's... I always thought, like, um, it was like a, a TV commercial edit thing or whatever until I watched it, you know, full on on VHS or whatever. You know, it's when they're talking in the kitchen, I guess, and then all of a sudden we're cutting to the front door of the neighbors. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this really jarring edit yeah. that feels, like, wrong. Like, it's, it's actually cut while the mother is talking. Like, the sentence is, is, isn't even 
fully formed or, you know, it's just like cut right as she's talking in the middle of a sentence. And then bam, we're in the front, we're on the front steps of uh, the neighbor's house. I'm just kind of like, why in the hands of two really great filmmakers at the time, not know that was a sloppy edit. Why didn't they think to fix that? Or in this day and age of like Lucas and Ridley Scott going back and, you know, retweaking every little thing. Um, why hasn't that edit been corrected? Because it's just so weird to me that it's still like that. I don't know. It, it, it's just, if I have to like nitpick on Poltergeist, I will say, like, that is just a weird thing to happen in this movie. Um, but I later find out on the IMDb, oh, it's because they mentioned Pizza Hut. <laughs> like, the dialogue originally had some, um, like, they mentioned, hey, you want to get Pizza Hut for dinner? And Caroline's like, no, nah, I don't like Pizza Hut! And so uh, they decided to cut that... Pizza Hut line out because Pizza Hut was mad or whatever. That's funny. Yeah, well, I guess it's a rumor. I mean, it's IMDb, whatever, but I'm still, like, just... It's silly to focus on just that thing as being like, oh, that's really screwed up. I don't know what they were thinking with that. Oh, weird. Why are all three cats in my room right now? That's weird. They're usually not all hanging out together. They're always separate. You're going to die. Oh, no. (laughs) I think they all want to be on the podcast. Do you guys want to talk about Poltergeist? Meow? No. Okay. Never mind. Let's move on. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, Poltergeist, you know, of course, in addition to being his first true big-budget film, is also, you know, a transitionary film for him in many ways. Yeah. The hippie obsession still carries over. The parents are clearly ex-hippies, um, and they were teenagers as well, if you yeah. do the math. But, of course, you know, they, they've now settled down and had a family. The, the 60s are over, and they survived the 70s. Um, they, the kid in Salem's Lot and the kid in the fun house were both obsessed with monsters. Right. That's been Star Wars. And this is, in, in that aspect and just in the way some of the things are shot, uh, this is this is where uh, Hooper's science, fish, science fiction obsession takes hold and, you know, carries over into the next two films he does. So I just thought that was interesting when I watched it this time. I hadn't really noticed that stuff before. Well, other than the hippie thing. Yeah, well, what's also interesting is the fact that I've seen the sequels almost as much as I've seen the original, and I don't like the sequels very much. <laughs> I don't know why. It's it's almost like the same thing I have with Richard Kelly's The Box, where I've gone back and I've seen Poltergeist 2 many times, hoping like, oh, I think this is actually a better movie than I remember. And I watch it again and go like, wait a minute, no, this is actually kind of bad. Especially the way it ends. It's really bad with the way it ends. But there's no denying the fact that that, that, that fucking preacher guy in the in part two, you know what I'm talking about, right? Kane. Kane, thank you. Scary as fuck. 
let me in. That, that whole thing. Oh. Things it really has going for it. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know why you keep watching the sequels over and over again, but I can tell you why I do it. I sit through Poltergeist. I love every minute with the family, whether it's involving the supernatural stuff or not. And then when it's over, I want more. Right. So I'm in Poltergeist 2 thinking, oh, hey, maybe I'll like it more this time. And then there's only three movies. So even when you're disappointed by Poltergeist 2, you, you figure, ah, I might as well go ahead and watch the third one again. And then at the, by the end of that, I, I'm just sitting there wondering why I, why I put myself through it again. They're not terrible movies, but they're not good ones either. They're just kind of there. Poltergeist 3 is kind of terrible in a car crash kind of way. Right. You just can't look away. Right. I find it a fascinating movie to where I would maybe do a whole episode, like a whole bonus episode on it because there's got to be stories. There's got to be, there's got to be some, some myth and legend and weird. I mean, obviously, you know, you could do another episode too with just the whole crazy, um, not conspiracy. What's the word I'm looking for? With the curse. Uh, curse thank you um yeah the whole curse that occurred um but god poltergeist 3 is just so bizarre i remember being so excited for it because it came out at a time when i was really into horror movies and couldn't wait for it to come in at my video store and uh, like the mirror shit and it really is the only movie you need to see for a drinking game. I mean, obviously you can do it with Titanic and Jack and all that crap, but seriously, watch Poltergeist 3, and anytime somebody says Carol Ann, drink. You will be dead. You will be dead. You will die of alcohol poisoning at the end of that movie. Then we can all finally go into the light. Oh, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. That's sweet. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I love Poltergeist, and uh, you know, it's 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 Toby Hooper doing what Toby Hooper does well, and then we go on to his canon trilogy, which all in all is kind of a, again a fascinating mess of films. That I know there are defenders, avid defenders of Life Force. I. I, I'm not one of them, and I know you are. Let's start it off on a positive note. Go ahead. Uh, well, I, w- I will not disagree at all that his canon trilogy is an absolute mess from start to finish. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they're my kind of mess, really, which sure. is kind of how I feel about, since we were talking about Craven earlier, it's how I feel about Shocker as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's, it's just its own thing, for better or worse. Life Force, um, I think part of my love for it, outside of the sheer insanity of everything, is that it really taps into like a bit of the uh, Hammer and Mario Bava aesthetic. Oh, okay. It's, 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 it feels like a big Brit sci-fi movie. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day, and I said it's the most 80s film that Hammer never made. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's canon and they were cheap, you know, you would expect a movie as expensive and expensive looking as Life Force to have huge stars in it. But instead, it stars Steve Riles back and Peter Firth. 
Yep. It, it's it's just odd. Um, it's full of British character actors, and and again, it's just full on sets. Uh, especially the London one actually looks like a set, but it's done in such a manner that I, I really don't care. Just again, kind of like watching an old Hammer movie or a British sci-fi film. Um, I don't know. For whatever reason, uh, this the sheer insanity of it just works for me, and uh, it, it's just absolutely bonkers. And it goes at a break, uh, breakneck pace, and uh, doesn't linger long enough for too many of the flaws to take hold and uh, lessen its impact for me. But I don't fault anyone who feels otherwise. Oh, that's good to hear. Because. Um... <laughs> It's it's definitely a movie where I absolutely love it, but I'm not going to yell at anyone for not liking it. Yeah, it's. I have a weird memory of this movie because I recall my dad. I don't know if he, um, I don't know if he was like consciously aware of screenwriters or not, but you know Dan O'Bannon, for yeah. example. I think he liked pretty much all of Dan O'Bannon's films. Um, Going all the way back to Dark Star, I can have a vivid memory in my head of my dad owning a Dark Star VHS copy and the cover art and everything. And, um, you know, he just liked science fiction. I would say that that was his genre, if, if I had to pick one that he gravitated towards. Um didn't like horror but he loved science fiction so i remember him renting life force obviously knowing it was r and even at age seven or eight at the time i was occasionally dabbling into the r-rated films and it it was a movie that i was perplexed by and i still watch it feeling perplexed i still watch it going this is kind of a mess and I don't know why it doesn't click with me or I don't find it as compelling as most movies of this ilk should. Cause I do like Dan O'Bannon. I can like Toby Hooper. Um, boobs are great. Um, I don't know. I just, it just, it just seems to veer from like, I don't know if it was an intended homages, but you know, at the same time, fairly recently, I rewatched you know um, Planet of the Vampires, and kind of go, that's that's perfect. That's exactly what I want from a space vampire movie. Uh, this kind of goes all over the map, and you know, in a way, it's it's like it's it's the strengths and weaknesses of Toby Hooper, kind of put in a blender. Um, and you can find, you can find a lot to admire in the audacity of putting a movie like this together. The fact that it's a canon film through and through, um, there's certain touches that remind me of the things I love in Invaders from Mars. It just doesn't sit well with me. It just doesn't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like the type to be like, I'm certainly not a prude and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to harp on the fact you know, based on my response to um, the opening of Funhouse and um, 
now with Life Force, the fact that like it's just it's just too much. It's, it just lingers on boobs. And I love them, but it's just it's just distracting. Um, and I know that's kind of like you know playfully cited you know through and through with this movie is like oh yeah that, that actress walks around naked for so much of this movie it's great I don't know it 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 it, it doesn't make or break the movie but it doesn't certainly make the movie and um I agree. you know and, and Patrick Stewart shows up that's cool. Um, there's just like moments in this movie where I go, well, that's cool. But as a whole, when it all, when it, when it's all said and done, it just doesn't work and it doesn't do a whole lot that I haven't seen before in better films. Um, and I don't find it to be like the most memorable movie outside of its weirdness. And maybe that weirdness is appealing. Clearly it is for you. Um, and I could, I could see the shocker argument. That's a good point. I will give you that. Like, a movie like Shocker, I know there are people who would give that, you know, two out of five stars or less just because it's not an entertaining mess to them. Whereas, for me, it is an entertaining mess. So, on that on that basis if there are people out there who think life force is great based on the entertainment value they get out of it and the fact that it is batshit crazy and it kind of goes all over the place um i will give them credit i'm not going to you know say you're wrong in that regard because um hey there there's certain films that i will you know go to bat for that i'm sure people would think i'm crazy for loving too and uh, unfortunately, Life Force is not one of them. Whereas the next one, that's that's the one. That that is the Canon Hooper movie that clicked with me so hard as a kid. Um, it was my first exposure to the sort of body snatchers kind of. Uh, approach to, you know, uh, authority figures, adults, teachers being way off and, you know, being taken over by outside forces, thinking that they're weird and um, that they didn't understand me or whatever. But um, Invaders from Mars is, is a fantastic remake that just happens to mirror the original almost identically. Right down to the ridiculous ending, which I, I kind of don't like. I just, I want both of those movies to have completely different endings that I'm never going to get. And the, the whole waking up and it's a dream, come on. By now, that is just eye-rolling in every way. I know this is from, from the perspective of, um, of David, through and through. It is like just everything is heightened. You know, the, the, the fact that, you know, nurse ratchet is eating a frog, <laughs> you know, like it just doesn't get better than, you know, certain moments in this movie, particularly, you know, um, nurse ratchets, like 
just standing there saying, David Gardner, I'll get you. I'll get you. Over and over again. <laughs> like, some people can laugh at that, but as a kid, I found that, f- like, her just standing there looking completely still, creepy. Um, I mean, I, I will agree that the giant Mr. Potato Head puppet alien things are kind of silly. Um, you know, the fact that they just fall over when they're shot and (laughs) (laughs) you see where the effects budget went. Um, it's a B movie. It's a B science fiction horror movie done right. Um, and the fact that they're just, you know, you got the kid from Paris, Texas, you got Karen Black, who's actually, you know, the kid's real life mom, you know, Lorraine Newman occasionally doing her Coneheads voice. Um, there's just weird touches that just happen to hit home with me throughout this entire movie. And the fact that my dad and I saw this opening night and we both realized it was a silly movie that we just happened to love. Like, I don't think the audience liked it at all, but we happened to like it. So it's one of those, like, personal childhood staples that I love purely out of nostalgia. Like I can nitpick it to death. I can say it's not a great movie, but for me it is in my eyes, especially as a kid, this was a great science fiction horror film of sorts. And you got Bud Court. You know, there's, there's so many things I could go on and on, but (laughs) it's a, it's also a ridiculously cheesy, silly movie at times. But it works. It's it, for me out of the canon films, sandwiched in the middle. Some people have made the argument it's the worst of the three, or it's you know the laziest, just because it's a remake and it's almost scene for scene exactly like the original. I don't care. I still love Invaders from Mars. How about you? I actually never saw this one when I was little. I saw it once, probably about a decade ago, maybe a little longer, but I was only half paying attention because I was watching it with friends. Excuse me. So when I sat down last night, I actually didn't watch this one until last night. I sat down with it. I didn't quite know what to expect. I know a lot of people had labeled it as a lazy remake, just sandwiched in between the insanity of Life Force and the insanity of... Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but I actually loved every minute of it. Um, <laughs> it. It plays like a pure childhood fantasy, and I actually like the dream ending for one particular reason. Um, it, I meant to rewatch the original, but I just didn't have time. But it felt like um, it, the whole dream thing worked for me because it felt like the kid had gone to sleep watching the meteors in his sci-fi obsessions in general mm-hmm. and had cast himself in a 50s sci-fi movie in his dream. <laughs> the nurse that he has a crush on is his damsel in distress. And at a couple points in the film, when she's screaming, she's crouched lower than him. So he looks taller and he's holding her. Um, he's got a school letters jacket on, which I thought was weird for an elementary school or middle school kid uh, it makes him it fashions him like a high school or college stud like a young steve mcqueen type uh, a superhero uh, 
Exactly. Uh, when, he, well, when he's sitting with uh, General James Karen and they're talking about uh, radar, he comes up with this ridiculous explanation for why the ship wouldn't have shown up on radar. He's all of a sudden a science and alien expert out of the blue. It, it, every beat through the film, it just felt like him envisioning himself in his mind as this classic 1950s sci-fi hero battling uh, invading aliens, except he's a little kid. Uh, it, it feels like a feature-length like Goosebumps tale. <laughs> and the Nurse Ratchet stuff, uh, I completely agree on. And it, uh, you know, kids, especially little ones, are tend to be a little feel, fearful or untrusting of the elderly. So it would make sense that he would crush on the nurse and be afraid of his older teacher. And then a, a lot of the weirdness in it, especially with the parents and with uh, Nurse Ratchet, it feels like stuff that adults would find silly, but a kid would find absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Pouring too much sugar into your coffee, uh, eating raw meat, chowing down on frogs in a science lab. Um, it it just feels like a pure childhood fantasy, all taking place in this kid's wild imagination as he sleeps. So I didn't mind the dream aspect at all. It it really worked for me here. I usually don't like that in films, but it, it really really worked for me this time. I guess it makes sense. It does. Um, so I I think my main complaint is not necessarily the fact that he wakes up and it's all a dream. It's more, does he essentially just go back to bed and have a reoccurring dream at the very, very end before the closing credits come up? I was wondering that, too. If he woke up, his parents calmed him down, they went to bed, he went back to sleep, and the dream started again. Okay. Well, that would I guess that would make sense, or it yeah, really yeah. happened. <laughs> that time, I don't know. I, that's the kind of thing I was like, what a weird note to end the movie on. I mean, I guess it's an unhappy ending, in a way. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a more like a questionable ending. Like, I don't know what my initial response to it was, at, at, like what I felt as a kid when I first saw that ending, but... Like, now I'm kind of like, that's just a weird way to end the movie. I don't know how I feel about it. Like, I want, I don't know if I want closure or I want him to save the day or something, but it's just weird. Like, I mean, he, I guess if we want to take it in terms of him going back to sleep and he just has a reoccurring dream, and this time he runs into his parents' bedroom and maybe the aliens have eaten his parents or I don't know what exactly happens, but it just ends with a freeze frame of his mouth wide open screaming. Growling. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, and it ends with him going, no, I'm just, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's silly. Oh, it's, it's absolutely bonkers. And it just feels like Hooper and O'Bannon just said, you know what? What would <laughs> if we could have gone back and started in a fifty sci-fi movie? What would it have felt like? And that's exactly what they made. Yeah, just and still using the framework of the original film. Like, on honestly, I'm, I might watch it again later today. <laughs> oh, that's uh, cool. I I I don't know if, how my kids would respond to it right now since they're a little too young for the imagery, but it's definitely something I want to show to them once they can handle it, because I think they're going to love it. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna order the Blu-ray. I I don't know if I don't know if the, the uh, documentary on it is new or not. Huh? I'm pretty sure it is. I don't have it either. I, I definitely want to order it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I would love to listen to the commentary and check out the documentary because it is it is a film that has a special place in my heart because of my connection to it with my dad. And even that opening scene with them looking at the meteorites, I'm just like, oh, see that, you know, we, there are good relationships out there with parents. They're not all dysfunctional. Right. And I I like that. That's, that's, that's the note that the movie starts out on. But, um, on the flip side, my review of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 can really be summed up like, if you like Rob Zombie's movies, you probably like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I hate Rob Zombie's... I hate Rob Zombie's movies. Therefore, I hate Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And I feel bad just like being kind of just dismissive of it, because maybe there is merit to it. Maybe there is a lot going for it. It's just outright not for me. And I really have nothing more to say other than that. Like I've, I've mentioned earlier what turns me off about it. And, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure you feel differently. A lot of people do, and that's cool, but it's, it's too batshit crazy. It's too loud. It's too shrill. It's just not my thing. And I wish I felt differently. I think I feel that way about the majority. I think the only Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie I like is the first one, period. That's that. <laughs> that might be the only like the remakes, fuck those. Um I I haven't even bothered with like the more recent ones, whatever they are, 3D or you know, whatever they are. I don't know. Don't watch Texas Chainsaw. Just don't, Jim. Okay, I never will. It, it is absolutely horrible. Um at I like Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. I don't think it's the mega classic that a lot peg it as. It's it's just a little too messy and rushed mm-hmm. for it to hit that kind of level for me. I do like the humor and the the just garish insanity of it all. Um, but there there definitely other to- Toby Hooper movies I like better. And out of the three canon films, I like it the least. Even though I, I really do like the film. Um, as far as the rest of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series goes, I have a soft spot for the third one, but I would never call it a good movie. And then it's just kind of diminishing returns after that. I, I After I walked out of the latest one, I actually swore off seeing any more. So naturally, they hired two directors that I actually like to do the new one. So I'll be watching that next year. Wait, what's the <laughs> new one? It's just called Leatherface. You know, <laughs> even though we already have one in the series with that title. It's a prequel to the original film, and it's young Bubba or Leatherface or whatever you want to call it, busting out of a mental institution with a couple other patients, taking a nurse hostage and going on a road trip. Oh, fun. <laughs> and who's, who's directing it? Well, they've before I get to that, they've got the uh, a bit of a, uh, Texas Chainsaw 2 angle in that there's a uh, crazed uh, Texas Ranger hunting them down, played by Stephen Dorff. Oh. Hmm. But uh, what what has me interested in it is, and I hope I don't butcher their names, it's uh, Alexander Bustillo and Julian Marais. 
the uh, directors of Inside and Livid. Really? So that that's what's got me hooked. I'm not sold on the premise. I'm huh. not. Well, the cast sounds a little bit fun, but with those two directing it, I have to give it a shot. <laughs> I'm going to be kicking myself if I walk out and it's another Texas Chainsaw 3D again. But yeah, they they roped me back in. Hmm. Yeah, I. Uh, it's gotten to the point though where. Movies like Wrong Turn or Wolf Creek or, uh, I mean, they're not sitting well with me as much as maybe when I was younger and could be more open to seeing people get tortured or chased for, you know, hours on end. It's it's not that I'm, like, becoming a prude or I'm sensitive. Well, I am sensitive. But um, it's, it is just, like... For the purposes of entertainment, I kind of go, well, this has been perfected in other films that I love and wouldn't mind revisiting time and time again. But I will say every now and again, you know, there'll be something like a Joyride or there's a wrong turn sequel that's really funny, that's really smart and clever. Um, I forgot which one it is, but... It's the one with Henry Rollins in it. The second one. Yeah. So, you know, every now and again, you'll get something that hooks me. Whereas, like, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is just a bunch of people running around screaming. And I'm not too, I'm not going to dismiss it as that. There are probably things about it that make it worthwhile, that make it a classic. You got Dennis Hopper. I realize that. Um, but as time has gone on, it's just not one I get excited about revisiting. The only other one I might revisit again, even though I'm my memory of it is that it is a bad movie, is the um, you know the next generation Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just because of the Matthew McConaughey element. I'd be curious to watch <laughs> it now, you know, knowing Matthew Mc- the Matthew McConaughey from True Detective. You know, and just watching him chew scenery for ninety minutes, um, but I don't, I don't remember that being a very good movie at all. Yeah, it's not. So um, now we get to a very mixed bag because, like, from this point forward, I would say Toby Hooper has really struggled. Um, from the nineties onward. There hasn't been either a whole lot I've seen, or there's the ones I have seen have been terrible. Um, I hear good things about toolbox murders, but I've yet to get to it. Um, but I will say this: I did watch Spontaneous Combustion on YouTube, and it's not a good movie. It's sadly it's pretty boring, even though you had Brad Dorf as the lead. And there are times where he's given like a Nicolas Cage performance where he's just acting really over the top, sometimes for no good reason. Like he'll just be yelling in a car when it's not even warranted. He's just yelling lines just to yell lines. Um, But I will say you get to watch John Landis catch on fire, which (laughs) surprised me and made me laugh. So it has that going for it. Um, 
So another, it's just like Toby Hooper doing Firestarter with Pretty like you know government paranoia um, as like maybe the subtext, but it's not a good movie. It's it's kind of a mess, but you know I wish it were a fascinating mess with a lot to say. It's just it's in one of those train wreck early '90s horror movies that is actually kind of dull despite its um, concept. And, you know, when you have a guy like Brad Dourif, you, you really expect a lot more to come uh, with, with, you know, uh, with, with the performance as, you know, crazy and over the top as it can be. It really isn't. It's just, it's like that in spurts, but not consistently. Um, and it's just, it's not, it's not very original and it's kind of a mess. I imagine it's one of those Hooper films that he struggled with, um, I know that in the early 90s, I don't know if that was a time where he was going through a personal crisis and went through some addiction issues. And, um, But, I mean, yeah, we're going to go through very briefly now um, some of the other ones we've seen. I, I also know that you've seen Salem's Lot fairly recently. I Like I said, I can't comment on it at length. But um, did you see anything else... In the '90s, that you want to touch yeah. on, um, I can just touch on a couple of things here if you want. Uh, spontaneous combustion. I didn't revisit it, revisit it ugh, for this, but I, I have seen it recently. It, probably about a year or two. Ago. What I remember from it being, yeah, it's it's absolutely a mess, but it's not an interesting mess like Life Force or Texas Chainsaw Two. Yeah, it it just it kind of drug on. Um, despite the an interesting premise and having Brad Dorf and a flaming John Landis, <laughs> <laughs> it I recall it feeling like three different movies mashed together, mm-hmm. three acts, and it, it was just kind of all over the place, but not in an interesting way. It, it just felt like it was drained of um, of energy. There there was no propulsion to the narrative. Right, terrible pacing. Yeah. Um, the next one that he did was I'm Dangerous Tonight, which is a, a TV movie um, for a while. It might have been all the same year where uh, Anthony Perkins did three different TV movies. Um, one was Psycho 4. Another was, uh, I think it was called Daughter of Darkness with Stuart Gordon. And then he did this one with Toby Hooper. I actually watched it That's last weird. night. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, I think Gabe actually sent me a message saying don't bother with Daughter of Darkness. Well, I would say don't bother with I'm Dangerous Tonight. Okay. Duly um, known. It's, it's an absolute slog. It's, it's, just, it's just kind of lifeless. Um, it's, it's about a cursed Aztec altar and cloak that gets sent to a museum and hijinks and people wear the, the red cloak. But, uh, yeah, it, it's just a mess and it's not interesting it was it was absolutely boring i think it was only an hour and a half long and it felt like five times that when i was watching it uh i haven't seen night terrors yeah neither have i i didn't read good reviews for it at all sadly i intend on watching i'll probably watch it in, in the coming weeks just to kind of complete things out uh, of course i know robert england is in it and uh, it involves something with the Marquis side and it was produced by Yoram Globus that has me interested a little bit but uh, I haven't seen it um, 
body bags. Yeah. I like body bags a lot, but I don't really care much for Hooper's segment in it. I know, right? That's what's so disappointing. Even um, though it feels like uh, Mark Hamill's giving a Bill Paxton impersonation in his... Uh, oh, yeah. Mark Hamill is so bad. Even with the mustache. Yeah, I know. It, it really is mm. really is awful. It's. I wish it would have became... I mean, obviously, maybe it was just like the Masters of Horror, or it could have been the Masters of Horror of the <laughs> early '90s. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a shame that like you know they they both intended on creating this anthology series um, with Carpenter and almost playing like the Crypt Keeper uh, role. But I uh, I love the gas station. I think that, I think it's great. Gas station is great, and I love the stuff with Carpenter himself. Yeah. Uh, hair, hair is pretty fun, but eye just doesn't do it for me. No, unfortunately not. Toby Hooper's segment in that is very weak. But, um, yeah, I I wish Body Bags was better, but um, it's worth seeing for the gas station. And if you're a horror fan, you'll know why. <laughs> Um, I have not. I have never seen the Mangler. It is awful. Uh, Absolute terrible things. I'm still going to watch it anyway soon, but I have. I have never seen it. You're a brave man. <laughs> well, I mean, Hooper. I, I don't know where I heard it. It's like he wishes people would stop picking on it, but it is legitimately terrible. And it's one of my earliest memories. Um, I think it came out the same year as In the Mouth of Madness because I think I saw it in the same theater. It did. And um, my friend and I, we saw In the Mouth of Madness in pretty much an empty theater, and uh, we loved it. And then maybe around the same time, we were really excited for The Mangler. We're like, ooh, Toby Hooper, Robert England, yeah. Stephen uh, King. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, it's the first memory I have of an audience turning on a movie and actively... Um, laughing at how bad it was. It was like the first memory I have of like, okay, we're all here to see a good horror movie, and then once we realize how terrible it is, let's just all laugh at how awful it is. And everybody in the audience was joining in and making fun of it, laughing. Um, it's a killer laundry machine thing, and I hardly have any memory of it, but I just remember it being... One of the worst movies I'd ever seen. And it's too bad. I really want to, like I said, I really want to champion more Toby Hoover movies. I want to say, like, maybe he's got another great film in him. And I think something like Toolbox Murders got a pass. Like, it got a, you know, a passing grade. Maybe a C plus or a B minus because, well, it wasn't as bad as The Mangler. You know, that's how people probably framed it, you know. Um, I haven't seen the apartment complex. I just know that it stars Chad Lowe. Oh boy. <laughs> Crocodile. I'm pretty sure I've seen because my little brother went through a massive uh, killer animal obsession at one point <laughs> and rented like, every single applicable film from the video store at the time. And I watched most of them with him and they, other than, you know, the, the clear landmark titles, most of them blur together. So I'm pretty sure I've seen Crocodile. I just don't remember it. Has he seen Crocodile Dundee? 
I don't know if he's seen Crocodile. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, Toolbox Murders, I wanted to rewatch it for this. I just didn't have the time. Um, I recall liking it, not living it. I love Angela Bettis, so. Yeah, the cast is part of it, and it the it's it's got a weird vibe to it. Um, it almost feel like, feels like it has some Argento elements because you've got this weird killer in the building, but the building itself also kind of sort of has some supernatural elements and like um, occult sigils all over the building. So it's it's really odd and offbeat. Okay. Um, but uh, it it's I haven't seen it since it first hit DVD. I just I just remember liking it but not loving it. So I I wouldn't hail it as one of his best films or a return to form. But uh, it it definitely seems to be the most watchable film he's made, at least out of what I've seen since the mid eighties. Uh, yeah. I saw Mortuary once. I don't remember liking it. And I wasn't much of a fan of either of his Masters of Horror episodes. Same. And then, of course, there's Jen, which supposedly hit VOD this past, well, this weekend. I know, right? That's weird timing. I couldn't find it anywhere. I saw it on iTunes, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I was like, weird. I. I don't know if I want to watch this or not. I mean, <laughs> again, if it, if, if it, five years, so yeah, that's what I mean. I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't have high hopes for it. And yeah, I know I'm supposed to podcast about the guy, but <laughs> I, I'm also like weary and I also want to champion him. Like I said, I keep hoping, you know, and then even, even to some degree, I don't even know if John Carpenter is ever going to make another movie again. But, you know, even after something like Ghost of Mars and The Ward, I'm kind of like, come on, John. You've got it in you. I believe in you. Come on. I know. Yeah. And I'm willing to... I'm less enthusiastic about... I wouldn't, you know, um, get out the pom-poms and the cheerleading outfit for Hooper in the same way I would for Carpenter. But um, I want to believe that there could be something left in the same way. Like even with somebody like Joe Dante, I kind of want to go, there's, there's gotta be at least one more great film. And if not, okay, we have, I mean, I can even just give my top three right off the bat here. (laughs) We have Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist, Invaders from Mars. And those three, right there for me are enough to go ahead and call him a master of horror. You know, even if he's flailed and hasn't been consistent and is made more bad than good, it's very easy for me to focus on the positive when you have films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Poltergeist uh, on your resume, you know? No, absolutely. So I know you saw Salem's Lot, and if you want yes. to touch on that really quickly, let's go ahead, since I know there are fans of it. I haven't seen it in a very long time. I also want to touch on eggshells real quick, too. Oh, cool. You saw that. All right. I did. Um, I had never seen it before. It, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say I liked it. Um, it it's an experimental drama film uh, focusing on the hippie movement in the late 60s. Uh, Toby wanted to take an objective look at it. 
So it just has a group of characters that it follows. Um, it's, it's just right at the tail end of when the movement was dying out. And some of the people in the group are clearly ready to just settle down and move on with their lives. Um, some are absolutely lost. And then there are a couple others that just kind of only seem to care about the uh, whole sex and drugs aspect of it. And there's a couple interesting trip out scenes that kind of tap into, you know, what he would go on to do with the horror genre. But what makes it interesting is that it's, while it's not as technically um, advanced and uh, masterful, it, it shot very similar, similar, just nasty stuff. Hmm. And it, it's interesting in that it, the film was shot before Charles Manson came along and still at the time when people thought the Vietnam war was going to end soon. So it, he, it kind of captures that last bit of enthusiasm that there was in the hippie movement right before it just all came crashing down when, you know, the Manson murders took place and you know, there were another six, seven years of Vietnam after that. And it, it kind of feels like, a precursor to Texas Chainsaw in that you could watch eggshells and see the uh, hippie movement, you know, just kind of sputtering out and running out of gas and then throw on Texas Chainsaw immediately later and have it literally run out of gas and then devoured by a uh, country. <laughs> so so if, if you ever get the chance to watch it, uh, I'd, I'd recommend watching Texas Chainsaw immediately after it. Cause it almost plays like this weird warped spiritual sequel to his debut film. Hmm, okay. No, I'll um, definitely check it out. As for Salem's Lot, I've been watching that one since I was little. Uh, it's probably the first Toby Hooper movie I ever saw. My dad was a big Stephen King fan and a massive horror fan, and we'd rent movies all the time when I was little. So I've, I've grown up with Salem's Lot. But I hadn't watched it in a while, and I was afraid it wouldn't hold up. But it actually does, course it, it drags a little bit because of the length it's sure it was a tv movie but it because it was a tv movie he had to pull back on the uh you know the insane aspects and the you know the more lurid aspects of uh, texas chainsaw and especially eating alive and focus more on atmosphere and dread just building tension in a more classical sense um and uh, it just really works for me it's very different from the book but in a good way, um, especially more than the 2004 version, which I don't like at all. Oh, that's right. It was remade. Hmm. Yeah. Or but readapted, I, much like The Shining was. True. Hmm. Um, of course, it's, it's got the little hippie element with the, the main character, Ben Mears. Uh, there's a lot, there's a still a lot of uh, design work carried over from. Texas Chainsaw, especially in the Marsden house in the film. Feathers and dust all over the floor, uh, smashed furniture. There's a whole wall of antlers at one point that someone gets impaled on, which I know Brian um, yeah, which I know Brian Fuller has pegged as one of his primary influences on Hannibal. So that the antler imagery, especially the oh. doctor being stuck with him throughout the years. But the thing I really noticed the most this time, you know, outside of the the iconic scare sequences like the window scene, yeah, with the vampires, never stuff, forget which, that. Yeah, apparently they used a boom crane for that instead of wires. 
because Super said no matter what you can do, you can always see wires. So he wanted to use the boom crane, and they shot it all in reverse to give it an extra creepy feel. But the thing I noticed the most this time is I'd 75% of the vampire victims and the vampires themselves in it are male. Hmm. Which I, I, I don't know why I'd never noticed it before, but it just struck me as odd in a good way because, you know, you're just used to it being, you know, women butchered on film. And traditionally, when you have a film full of vampires, one of them is male and all the rest are female. But that's not the case with this one. I would say on screen and off, there's probably about 20 deaths in the film and only five are female. Like it's, I don't know. It, it just, it just struck me as odd, especially in light of his other films, you know, for better or worse, a lot of Toby's movies involve women being terrorized. It, yeah, it that's very true. But I, I think, of course, I was raised on Hammer films as well, but uh, I think what sticks with me most about Salem's Lot is it's it's in that similar Hammer, Dark Shadows fashion, just with you know the classical European terrors being brought to suburban America, small town America. And uh, it's interesting that um, the sequel, A Return to Salem's Lot, was done by none other than Larry Cohen. We did uncredited script work on this one ah! I just, the other day. It was his idea to make the Barlow in the Hooper version um, a Nosferatu-like vampire that doesn't speak. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people, that's that's the big bone of contention I know that Stephen King himself has with it and a lot of King fans have with it is that in, you know, in the book, Barlow is more of a Dracula type. With a lot of dialogue and a lot of influence in the film, whereas, or in, in the story, not the film. Whereas in the film, um, Barlow never speaks. There's occasional growls, grumbles, and roars, but everything comes through his familiar Straker, which, you know, in addition to the aesthetic change to Barlow to make him look more terrifying, if you're going to have a lot of evil lines spoken, why not give them all to James Mason? <laughs> True that. Um, I might, I might revisit that within the month. Um, gosh, if I feel really ambitious, maybe I'll watch the sequel along with it since Larry Cohen did direct it and, uh, you know, gotta, gotta, you know, um, keep in touch with, um, the director's club alumni and, uh, still watch the films that you possibly have missed, um, and didn't get time to watch and in time for the preparation of the episode, but I, uh, I do remember liking Salem's Lot. I don't remember being crazy head over heels or in love with it, but, um, I remember being definitely drawn out, but also not thinking that was a bad thing because it was, uh, it was split up into two parts and fairly well paced. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was, of course the book is gargantuan, but they streamlined the story fairly well. Right. Tried to pay attention to that as much as I could this time. Um, of course, my, a lot of my love is nostalgic, so I'm not sure how well it would play with someone who now, as an adult, who didn't grow up with it or watch it a lot. And as a huge fan of Fright Night and you know Buffy, and now that you mentioned the the Hannibal connection there, I I imagine it would be great to revisit this 
you know, sort of uh, having a stronger connection to different um, elements of pop culture and the way this film probably influenced a lot of great uh, TV shows and films that followed. It's a good choice for the mind as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, um, good call. So, what would be your Toby Hooper top three, Daniel? Well, if I'm just going with a top three, it would be Texas Chainsaw, um, Poltergeist, and Life Force would be my top three. Okay. Invaders from Mars would be my number four, and I would probably peg Salem's Lot as number five. All right. With Texas Chainsaw 2 right underneath that. <laughs> you had to ruin it. We were doing okay. I mean, I'm not even the biggest fan of Life Force, but I'm, I'm willing to give it a pass because you at least love Shocker. And... The fact that you equated those two, I'm like, okay, I got it. I get, I get where you're coming from. You know, I, as I'm watching Life Force, I'm like, I don't get this. Why would people like this piece of crap? But when you put it, in, you know, when you when you frame it differently and you try to have a more positive outlook, and you all you have to do is say, you know what? This kind of reminds me of Shocker. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I think I think if people just started doing that for all movies, they just you know. Why do you like this? Oh, because it reminds me of Shocker. Then I'll understand. <laughs> so, Daniel, yep. are you doing any writing of any kind? I, I know you're on Letterboxd and whatnot, right? Yes. Um, I am the editor-in-chief of VillainSmash.com, which Ooh. is the superhero and comic book-themed uh, sister site to Bloody Disgusting. Sweet. Congrats, and, uh, <laughs> Thanks. Also, do some writing on Blade Disgusting, although I haven't done any recently. And occasionally, I'll do stuff on um, my friend Bob's uh, site, Cult Spark, as well as occasional reviews over at DVD Active with Gabe. But uh, primarily, it's just Villain Smash and uh, Bloody Disgusting is where you can find me. Awesome. Yeah, I'll link to your uh, letterbox so people can follow you there. Um,. Yeah, I'm mostly just like I like I've mentioned to people. I'm mostly just rating. I hardly write reviews, but um, anytime I watch something, I do pick up my phone and I just rate it right away. So, in case you're curious as to what I'm doing at that exact moment or what I've just seen or what I thought of it, you know, Letterbox is the place to go. And like I said, please do visit Patrick's Letterbox because that's where he's mostly active these days. That's where you can find the. Um, all the details for the upcoming horror show episode, which will probably be coming out, um, I'm assuming right around Halloween. I'm I'm guessing that they're planning on uh, maybe on Halloween or a few days before Halloween, but it'll be very close to that time, and that's going to be great. Um, so yeah, I I really appreciate you coming back on, Daniel. Um, you know, if you want to come on again next year for a non-horror filmmaker, that's cool too. But if you want to, um, maybe you can be on for the Poltergeist three episode that I have in mind. <laughs> maybe, yeah, be fun. I'll... Yep, we'll have to count the number of times both of us say Carol Ann. So yeah, um, like I said, for the next episode, once again horror themed. Couldn't be more excited. Because there's a lot of Stuart Gordon films I haven't seen. I'm a big fan of Reanimator and From Beyond, of course. 
Um, I even really like Stuck a lot. Um, but there's, there, um, according to Gabe, there's a couple there in the mix that I have not seen that he considers to be underrated, um, including Dolls. <laughs> so there's some I'm excited to see for the first time for Stuart Gordon. So that'll be coming up in about two weeks as well. So um, please visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. You can send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com, and you can also send lists for Patrick's Horror Show episode to that email as well. So we'll see you in a couple weeks for the Stuart Gordon episode with Gabe Powers. Thanks so much, and thanks again, Daniel, for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jim. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. It's the field trip, David Gardner. Seriously. Watch Poltergeist 3, and anytime somebody says Carol Ann, drink. You will be dead. You will be <laughs> dead. You will die of alcohol poisoning at the end of that movie. Then we can all finally go into the light. Oh, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs>